Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. This year we will be taking a topical look at a number of different big ideas uh, as we move along. And this first season, this first series that we have is a series of conversations between myself and Tanya White, another Matan faculty member. And we discuss the topic of evil, uh, try and tackle no less than probably one of the biggest theological ideas, topics, struggles that we face in our ancient and modern world. And in these series of conversations, the first of which you'll hear was recorded on Facebook Live, we first discussed the problem itself, the particular challenge that we feel that us moderns are faced with when we think about these topics, when we struggle with disease and challenge and, and all different types of challenges that we face in our daily life. And as we move along in this series, we'll be talking about more specific topics. We'll be speaking about illness. We'll be speaking about how to think, process, feel through the global pandemic. Uh, and other forms of suffering. So stick with us. Uh, This first episode, as I said, was recorded on Facebook Live. Uh, Stay tuned for the coming episodes. It's great to be back here again on a new season of uh, of one-on-one. This uh, this year, this season, we're we're going to be running a number of series. uh, And our first series is uh, between... Tanya White and myself, another Matan faculty member, and we'll be discussing uh, different ways of looking at and different responses to question uh, question of evil, of dealing with difficulty and challenge in this world. Uh, stay tuned to our upcoming series as well uh, with uh, Dr. L. Ziegler, and please God, many more to come. But uh, I'm thrilled to kick off this first one with Tanya. Tanya, it's great to have you here. Great to be here with you again, Yosefa. Been looking forward to getting back. <laughs> Me too. Tanya, we we both have fathers who have passed away, um, different circumstances. But uh, if someone would tell us that they died because of their sins, I think both you and I would look at them and think that they were kind of socially off. Yeah. Uh, it's not really your average response that someone would give after hearing something like that happen. But the fact is that this message, the correlation between death or early death or illness uh, and people's sins is a message that comes through pretty clearly in a lot of biblical texts and also texts later than that. Uh, plague, illness, national troubles, natural disaster are often presented as a result of sin. The generation of the flood, the destruction of the northern kingdom and Sefer Melachim, the, the examples really are endless. Most of us have witnessed the following phenomenon. Someone suffers a life-altering event, let's say an illness, and, and then they recover. Uh, religious folks tend to go in two directions. Either they lose their faith through that struggle or part of their faith, and lessen their mitzvah observance, or they can become more devout. What thought processes underlie such responses? They both assume God's involvement in their life. The first feels abandoned, and the second wants to come closer, or feels that God has actually pulled them closer through that challenge. Do both or either of these responses have precedence in Jewish sources throughout the ages? These are some of the questions that Tanya and I want to discuss together and bring to you. 
uh, hopefully in a way that will be relevant to to us moderns uh, searching for a meaningful perspective on the challenges that we face in our lives. Uh, one distinction I want to make clear from the outset is the distinction between responses and answers. We don't have any answers. Uh, we will present a number of responses, of approaches for how to deal or how to think, how to process these difficulties in our life uh, and how we can conceive of God and our relationship with God in periods of struggle. But there are no answers to these questions. There is a reason why these have been questions that have followed us throughout throughout the ages. But we both believe that in this current reality, post-Holocaust, living with our most modern magefa, with our most modern pandemic, and with illness being something that, I don't know if we can statistically say is on the rise, but sometimes I really do feel that. We, we really believe that it's not only important, but it's actually an imperative that we talk about uh, prisms, about ways to think about these issues so that we can engage with them uh, with our minds and with our hearts in a way that brings God into our life and that brings us into full engagement with these questions without really avoiding them. Yosef, I think it's super important the differentiation you've made between an answer and a response. Um, when we talk about answers, and Elie Wiesel speaks about this a lot in his books, Elie Wiesel says an answer is a closing. It closes us off to the possibility of future of addressing the question again in the future, it closes us off to a journey towards different paradigms. And when we have, when we take an answer, we kind of box ourselves into a certain ending. And I think for this problem, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, it's a problem, it's a perennial problem of humanity that begins from the moment Adam and Chava exit the, the exit Gan Eden, exit the um, Garden of Eden. And I think that for us, you know, speaking in the 21st century, we have to know, and especially with this very short series podcast, where we can't possibly address every single different response, but we can certainly offer a few different responses that may work at certain moments in people's lives. So I think that's a very, you know, very important to emphasize that. I wanted to just bring in a certain metaphor that I think will be very helpful to us when we're debating this particular topic, not just in this in, in this episode, but also for the future episodes. And that metaphor is given to us by David Brooks. David Brooks is an American journalist, um, social intellect, um, somebody that writes, um, you know, writes a lot of different articles. And he writes a book called The Second Mountain. And in that book, it's kind of a half autobiography um, and, and, and generally just speaking about um, suffering and life and, and ethics and morality. And in that book, he describes um, somebody's life. And he says very often when we go on the journey of living, we approach it through the metaphor of two mountains. He says we climb very often in our lives, we climb the first mountain. And what's the first mountain? The first mountain is the mountain of personal goals. It's about wealthy success. It's about career ambitions. It's about perhaps traveling in the right social circles. But there's something about that mountain that's transitory um, and ultimately unsatisfying, right? And then we get to 
at some point in our lives. And again, I think every single human being will meet at some point in their lives a season of pain and suffering. And that he calls the valley. And again, he says it doesn't necessarily always have to be in this order, but usually it is that we drop, we fall from that mountain into the valley. And in that valley, we, um, for whatever reason it be, it can, and it can be anything, it can be a moment of real tragedy, or it can just be some kind of adversity that we perhaps have never faced before. And when we're in a valley, we're immersed in our grief, in our pain. And the question is going to be, how can we climb up that second mountain? And I think when we approach the question of suffering, of course, we're going to be looking at it from a religious and a theological point of view, because as religious Jews, both of us, and, and I'm sure a lot of people that are listening, perhaps um, whenever we approach any problem in our lives or whenever we approach any conundrum that we are existentially grappling with, we're only always going to be looking at it from the prism of a religious perspective. But I think ultimately this is also a deeply human question. And this is how David Brooks describes it. He says that every human being at some point will be sinking or will be drowning, so to speak, in that valley. And the question that they have to ask themselves is how we can climb the second mountain. And the second mountain for Brooks is characterized by other-centeredness, by self-giving, um, by self-transcendence, right? Which is basically moving outside of the I, right? What Rabbi Sachs would call moving to the we. And I think what he says is that in the first mountain, if that's defined by happiness, the second mountain is defined by something far more transcendent, and he describes that as joy. But I think what we're going to address in these series of podcasts is exactly the question that he asked, which is, how do we move from the valley to climb the second mountain? Is there a way of doing that where we still are able to retain the gift and I think it really is a gift in so many ways, the gift of our religious commitment, the gift of our religious framework. Are we able to still um, embrace those very, very important things in our lives and climb the second mountain out from the valley of suffering? So I think that's going to be a super important paradigm for us. Yeah, I, th I think that is a, a really, really important paradigm. And I wanted to add, um, I wanted to add two points to that. One is that what is the suffering itself? Um, obviously, the death of a loved one or an illness or um, uh, some other tremendous setback in life or someone didn't get a position that they spent decades working for or any of these. Th those are the disappointments. Those are That's the challenge. But one, one uh, aspect that I think is very important is that the suffering the suffering doesn't necessarily directly come as a result of that event. But what often is creates the suffering is when our picture of how life is supposed to be is not met. When our expectation for reality is completely and utterly shattered. I mean, it's not the death itself. Obviously the death is very, very painful, but it's the 
well, how do I live my life without that person any, any, anymore? How could it be that someone who was that wonderful is now no longer in this world? How could it be that children, right, can God forbid be taken from their parents? Meaning it's the, it's not necessarily the event itself that shatters, but it's the expectation we had of how life was supposed to be. And then the reality that we see before us. And that's what throws people into the valley. Meaning it's, it's the, it's the event, but more than the event, it's how much it shatters their vision of how life was supposed to be. Um, and these questions are important, impactful, and intense for any individual, but they take on additional significance for a religious person as well, because a religious person has God in that picture and believes that God's world is largely good, believes that God is just, and then when the world we meet is anything but that, or when we feel like we are meted out a life sentence that is incredibly difficult, unjust, and painful, then those questions not only take on the regular human level of difficulty, but they also take on a theological level. So that's just to break down the idea of what are we talking about even with with suffering. Yeah, I want to just add to that, um, which I think is very important. Um, two, two things, again, to, to, to circle back to the aims of the podcast. Um, number one, just to add to that, the idea of this chasm, so to speak, between um, the world as I expect it to be and the world as it is. And I just wanted to bring in also someone else who writes about this, Susan Nyman, who's a very well-known philosopher um, who writes about, she's actually Jewish, but she writes about, very much speaks about the notion of evil in philosophy. And in a book, book that she writes, Why Grow Up, she gives a perfect example, Yosefa, which I think, you know, we can both bear being young mothers, we can both um, identify with that, you know, for the first time, when, when does a child meet that exact chasm or that exact dissonance, so to speak, between the world as we expect it to be and the world as it is, is let's say, you know, when your five-year-old or seven-year-old probably comes home from school and says, you know, the teacher, it's not fair, your mother, the teacher told me off and I didn't deserve to be told off or I got a bad grade and I didn't deserve to get a bad grade. Um, and basically what they're saying to you is, well, hold on a minute, I expect the teacher to be just and fair because that's what I've learned. That's what a teacher's meant to be. You know, in the same way that we expect God, so to speak, to be fair and just and all good and all knowing, et cetera, et cetera, um, and benevolent. And when we come face to face with the reality and the child comes face to face with the reality where that person that they or the reality of which they expected to happen doesn't, then they come home and they say to the parent, life isn't fair. It's not fair. And as a parent, our job is to to actually turn around and say, yeah, you're right. Sometimes life isn't fair and sometimes people are not what we expect them to be. And there is a very great distance between what we expect and what we want. And the question is how we're going to deal with that adversity. And I think in the same way, when we look at it, you know, as adults on a theological level, and this is exactly what Susan Nyman talks about in her book, and which is actually called Why Grow Up. Right. Um, which is exactly this idea. And she speaks about the idea that being grown up, being a mature adult is exactly the ability to deal with the cognitive dissonance between the world as we expect it to be and the world that is. Are we able to grapple, to deal with, to climb the second mountain? Again, bringing in David Brooks's metaphor, um, even though we know that the world isn't exactly what we wanted it to be. Um, and it starts from a very, very young age. So I think, the again, one of the aims of the podcast is to grapple with that chasm between those two things. And the second thing I, wanna, I wanted to bring in, which is another aim, is the idea of um, periphery theologies. Um, we looked at, you know, when we speak about 
um, Galut and and that whole period of time, which was really framed in the rabbinic tradition within the idiom of reward and punishment, because um, Galut was a punishment, essentially. Ex- right? Exile was a punishment for our sins, right. which is the theology that comes through in all of Sefer Malachim and other. Right, which I think, which hopefully we'll talk about when we talk, when we look yeah. at the biblical um, background to it. But I think um, that idea has expanded greatly since the Holocaust and since the modern state of Israel. And generally, by the way, just with, I think, with the postmodern consciousness where where just our consciousness generally, human consciousness, I think, has expanded. Um, I think it's time to widen that scope and for us to, you know, in the same way when you learn a Gemara, for example, and you learn a brighter that is just not applicable to the Gemara or isn't used in the end to bring down the Halakha, and we say, why should we learn the brighter? And the answer they give is because at some point in the future, we may need to go back to that brighter. In the same way, I really believe that there are theological paradigms that are brought down to us, both in biblical literature and in rabbinic, lit- and in rabbinic literature. And even, to be honest, in some of the liturgies, you know, some of the prayers and, and various other Midrashic literature, where we have put them for many, many years on the back burner, so to speak. And the question is, maybe it's time for us to refer back to them today, especially in the post-Holocaust, post-modern world, um, and today with the pandemic and everything else that's going on. And I think that's another aim for us. Um, I think you'll agree yourself in the podcast for us to really tap yeah. into those periphery perspectives. Totally. And I wanted to add one piece, and then we're going to jump right into our our biblical discussion. But the one piece I wanted to add is another way to frame the second mountain of that we have to climb up after having been in the valley is I really often think about uh, when anybody goes through something that completely just shakes them to their core or shatters them, that ultimately the pieces have to be put back together. have to be glued back together and the cracks will remain, but they will be filled with, with other things, with meaning, hopefully with growth. Um, and the reason why I give that metaphor and only because it speaks to me deeply. Um, but because for me, Tanya, one of my aims for this series is also to give language. If anybody here is listening and they are struggling right now, they are right now in a valley, one of the greatest things, one of the greatest gifts that someone can receive is language to describe what they're going through. Uh, and I know that in my life, when I was first hit with um, what I assume to be will be my first valley in life, although I you know Bezrat Hashem, a long life, I assume there will be others. Um, when I was first hit with that, one of my most vivid experiences, visceral experiences that I had for really the first time in my life was the experience of having no words. Um, when I had never experienced in my life grief and mourning in the way that I did in a very intense way in that period of my life, I literally didn't write for over a year. Like nothing left my hands. I didn't have any words to speak. And so for me, one of my goals here is to provide language that if we can, if someone who's listening can identify with the metaphor or they certainly with one of the theologies we're going to bring forth, but even if the language itself is something that they can find cathartic, then, then in my mind, Tanya, we've, we've done our work here. Um, so that's one other piece that I, I also wanted to bring. Yeah. And I'd add to that, Yosef, and I think that's profoundly true. Um, and I, I totally concur with you because 
of a few valleys I've had in my life. Um, some that people know about, some that people don't. And of course, there's a lot of private valleys that people go through. Um, I, I totally agree that that there's, and I think the fact that you cannot express what you're going through creates a sense of deep loneliness, deep, deep yes. loneliness. And I think yes. one of the things we're going to be addressing, and I think one of the themes we're going to be addressing, is the idea of how. Um, community and shared experiences and just being, I'm going to talk about that later. I hope we'll talk about that as we go on, you know, in the, throughout the series, just being in the presence of somebody else, even if they cannot understand and even if you cannot express just the presence of another being can alleviate a deep sense of loneliness that all of us feel when we're suffering. Because honestly, when you suffer, you're suffer, right? You don't feel as if anyone else in the whole world has been through what you've been through. Yeah. And that itself is part of the suffering. So I, I 100% think that's also really, really important for us to know that people who are listening, and again, if they're going through these things, to know that there is a community out there, maybe not exactly what you're going through, but even in rabbinic, even in Jewish theology, that there are many different ways of tapping into that suffering and, and, and finding comfort in some kinds of response. There's obviously something so ironic about that. I, in my head, I always compare it to birth, right? Everybody grieves or, or experiences loss and, you know, g- giving birth is one of the more universal experiences. But somehow, whenever people go through it, you always feel extremely unique, extremely alone. And somehow that, you know, and, and part and when you when one is ready to reach out, from that valley or accept the hands that are reaching down to them, then we can come into the experience where we realize that, oh, other people have been here as well. It doesn't all have the same shade, but other people have been here as well. So so we, both of us are here to say to whoever's listening, we've been there. Uh, and, uh, and, and we also just want to be able to share these ideas and this language with, with anyone who, who needs it. So that's also, I'm sending out a prayer for these next few episodes. Okay. jump right in. We want we want to begin with biblical sources. A little a discussion of what what responses do we see in Tanakh? Is it what we expect it to be? Is it unexpected? Uh, we want to start a discussion there. And our and our next episode, please God, we'll go deeper into rabbinic sources and and we'll keep moving forward uh, in history after that. First, I want us to just hear. I'm going to read a number of psukim, a number of verses, to hear what I've already sort of expressed as what seems to be definitely a, a main perspective that exists in biblical literature, and that is um, disaster, uh, suffering as um, as a punishment. Uh, we have it in a number of places. I'll, I'll read uh, in two particular: uh, the punishment of the flood um, of uh, Parshiot that we have recently heard. Um, this is from Breshit, um, Perak Vav, chapter 6, 
וירא אדוני כי רבת רעת האדם בארץ, וכל יצר מחשבות ליבו רק רע כל היום. God sees that man has done evil, that is their only uh, occupation throughout the day. וינחם אדוני כי עשה את האדם בארץ, ויתעצב אל ליבו. And God regrets the fact that he uh, has created man, and he has saddened in his heart, one of my favorite anthropomorphic verses in all of Tanakh. ויאמר אדוני אמחה את האדם אשר בראתי מעל פני האדמה, מאדם עד בהמה, כי ניחמתי כי עשיתים. And God says, I will destroy man and animal that I created because I regret that I ever made them. Okay, you really can't get any clearer correlation between, between action and punishment. Um, this is really, really the strongest uh, connection we have. Another example that we have from uh, Sefer Bamidbar, from the Book of Numbers, chapter 25, um, where we have Am Yisrael who sin with the Midianite women, and we have the particularly egregious sin of, uh, of the Nasi, of the prince of, of the tribe of Shimon, and Pinchas goes and famously kills him and her who are sinning together, possibly in a precarious situation, They are in the Mikdash and in some version of worshipping Avodah Zarah. Vayar Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron HaKohen, Vayakom mitoch ha'ida, Vayikach romach biyado. Okay, Pinchas sees Kozbi and Zimri worshipping Avodah Zarah, and he gets up with a spear in his hand, and he kills them, Vayitkor et shnehem, Vatayatser ha-magifa me'al b'nei Yisrael. And when they are killed, the plague stops okay so again a very clear correlation between those who are sinning who are profaning the mishkan must die and when they die the play can end um and so again these are just two examples of 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 dozens all throughout tanakh um another example in sefer amos where we have uh, the nevuav parota bashan which is a derogatory name for the fat luscious uh, women of the north there in those times those who were overweight were obviously living a frivolous and very ostentatious lifestyle where they were able, able to eat so much uh, and what are their sins Ha'oshkot dalim I'm in Amos Perak Dalet chapter 4 Ha'rotetzot avyonim ha'omorot la'adonihem ha'viya v'nishteh here we have that they are living a frivolous lifestyle which seems to be bad in of itself and they are also oppressing the poor and God says you will be punished for your sins. You will have clean teeth, which is a wonderful biblical metaphor for being hungry. Um, and then God says, not only will you be hungry, but the other also classical biblical punishment for sin. And you also will not have any rain. And so here again, a motif we're familiar with from Shema that we say every day. Uh, and in the in the continuation of the same prophecy in in verse nine and you will also be hit with plagues plagues that will destroy your crops okay and so the hunger and the lack of water all of these will come as a result of your sins you have mistreated others and now you will be punished for your sins and this is a pretty clear theology that comes through in in a tremendous amount of sources throughout Tanakh however the book of Eov, Uh, and also, I believe, uh, the Book of Echa, to a certain degree, bring us a different perspective. Uh, the Book of Eov, uh, which uh, Tanya, please, you'll expound upon more after, 
does not go down such a clear-cut route. Um, solutions are offered by the friends of Eov, uh, even by his own wife. Um, but the book of Eov does not end with, uh, quote-unquote, an answer or with any agreement of the responses that are offered by his friends. The book of Eov ends on a, a, a much more amorphous note. Um, I'm reading here just uh, two psukim, one from uh, Perik Lametet from chapter 39. When God says to Eov, why do you even think that you can understand my world? Says, where, where were you when the world was created? Right? Do you, do you possess that kind of divine understanding? And, and God, and again, this sweeping response to the t- tens of chapters which try and offer responses, real, real reasons why Eov has suffered so much in his life. And God says, why do you think you can understand these things? How, how, is, how is that even possible? And Eov responds, responds later in, uh, in chapter 42, and he realizes in what's the most humble response. He says, I, I really can't understand. This is far beyond my comprehension. And this is already digging at a response that I think um, possibly speaks more. Not, I'm, I can't speak for everybody, but I think it's an important response, again, that, that should exist out there. Um, that certainly some of our also rabbinic uh, history has also taken up this response of, I can't really understand. I, I can't pretend to draw an exact linear line of causality and uh, and response uh, and punishment. It doesn't work that way. I don't possess the ability to make, maybe in Tanakh, our theological understanding and parshanut offered by the prophets, that is something that can be offered. But us individuals, we can't ever really offer that kind of understanding. I want to just add in a couple of things about Yom, um, which I think are important to point out. Besides what you beautifully explained in terms of, which I really would think just giving us a dose of humility in a sense when we drop down from that first mountain and reach the bottom of that valley, um, it really humbles us. There's a sense of, you know, our hubris, which perhaps dominated at the top of the first mountain, has been shattered completely. And we suddenly realize that whole. And by the way, I think that mankind as a whole over the last two years since Corona has, in some senses, also experienced that on a global level that, you know, we were the pinnacle of scientific research and R&D and, and all the various things that we were doing. And perhaps not being able to respond to this virus and not knowing how to respond to this virus and sort of grappling in the dark has really given us a dose of humility or should have given us a dose of humility. Um, I think that that's what we see in those responses from Eov um, after he's suffered. But I think, and to me, one of the greatest messages of the book of Eov and perhaps why it becomes, you know, in your words, a uh, in your words, what you said to me previously, a, a biblical joker, and I think it's such a great, uh, it's such a great metaphor. This idea of, of Eov being the biblical joker, because if if we think that reward and punishment is the only framework in which to assess suffering and evil, Eov comes and shatters that illusion. Because at the end of the book, God turns around to Eov and says to him. Tell your friends that they need to bring a sin offering. They were wrong in what they said. And what do we know the friends of Eov say? Mm. The friends of Eov 
want to blame Eeyore the entire time. They come at the beginning and they sit with him, but then they basically start inquiring of him, what did you do wrong? You must have done something wrong. And they say to him again and again and again, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned. Otherwise, you wouldn't be suffering in this way. And Eeyore insists he's not done anything wrong. And at the end of the book, Eeyore is um, God's... um, justifies Eov's response and says, Eov, you were right and your friends were wrong and you need, and they need to bring a sin offering because of that. So I think that part of the book of Eov is to shatter the classic refrain of divine reward and punishment and to say it doesn't always work that way. There are circumstances in which, you know, reward and punishment are not the only reason for suffering and evil in the world. I think that this is also an important moment to point out that there may be a difference that has to be made and I we would need to write new doctorates to figure this out but um, there might be a difference that needs to be made in Tanakh between national sin and punishment versus individual meaning that it is one thing to point out the cause for suffering on a national level and create that direct line between them. And it is something entirely different to do that in the face of an individual. Um, it's, it's painful. It's perhaps wrong. Uh, and, and I think that that, and again, I, I don't, I, we would need to collect more answers about this on an individual level. But when you read through Eov, you see how much that theology is being resisted. And I wonder, is it just because Eov wants to present a different paradigm of thinking? Or is it also because we have to differentiate between speaking about the Northern Kingdom and how a prophet needs to rebuke them versus that all might be true. But when someone from the North would come to you and is suffering and they've been exiled, do you look at them and say, well, you know, you sinned, right? And, and that individual, by the way, may never have even sinned. They may not have been someone in the North who, I'm going back to my example from Amos, they may not have been someone who actually was evil to the poor, who took advantage of the poor. And so it could be that our responses, even from a biblical perspective, need to be different when we are addressing the nation versus when we're addressing a person and their individual suffering. So it's interesting, Yosef, and I know that you wanted to bring Eicha. And, you know, if you look at the book of Eicha, the middle chapter, which is chapter three, um, and Dr. Yael Ziegler uh, talks about this in her book, her new book. Um, chapter three is an oddity in the book. Um, it's longer than the other chapters. It doesn't speak about the national, it speaks about the individual. And it's very interesting because in the other chapters, we really go along the refrain of divine rewards and, you know, sin and punishment. Sure, it's the national destruction of the temple and, and exactly. national sin that brought that about. Exactly, exactly. And it's Jerusalem crying, et cetera, et cetera. But chapter three describes the individual pain and existential wretchedness of suffering. And it's, a, it's very different. It's very, very different. And it's posed differently. The language is different. The sentiment is different. And I think that's exactly what you're saying, that this differentiation between the national and the personal, the national and the individual is also going to be very, very important when we're talking about this, the, the question of evil, the question of suffering. Yeah, and I'll even add that, uh, if I can bring in just one idea also that, uh, that Dr. Ziegler brings, is that 
and again, this would require a complete analysis of Echa, which we're not going to do right here. But if you, when you read through Echa, yeah. uh, it really resists a simple solution for the problem of suffering. Um, and it resists, it, it does not deny that injustice really is everywhere. Um, but it, at the same time, the speaker of Echa does not agree to leave God out of the picture, meaning it, it, it really, Echa in many ways brings that struggle to the fore without giving the answer. Meaning the, the conclusion is certainly that God is still here and God is with us. However, the suffering, the national suffering has also created intense individual suffering, which is what you are bringing in, in Paragimel in chapter three. And so I do believe that Echa and Yov, if we can talk about periphery theologies, I'm not really calling Yov and Echa periphery books, but they're they're not the national histories of Shmuel and Melachim. Uh, and so those two books, I think, are books that within the biblical corpus do need to be looked at because they do have something else to offer. And of course, it depends how you read them and, and different readings abound. But I do think that on this particular question of how do we approach evil, that they have a different shade to offer to this question than other more classic texts that, that I brought earlier. 100%. I agree with you on that. So I think that I wouldn't, I, I'd love to just look at one particular narrative. Um, and it's this narrative, interestingly. I mean, I, I actually don't think this is the first narrative that grapples with the problem of evil, because I think that begins even when Adam and Chava exiled from the Garden of Eden, and we're not going to look at that right now. But there is this idea that I think already exists in the Torah very early on in the narrative of Cain and Hevel where we see that God does not come down to explain or justify in fact I think he rarely if ever in Tanakh comes to explain or justify um, himself or why he's doing a particular act or acting in a particular way but I want to just share with you how I read the story of Cain and Hevel because I think this is the first time that we hear a divine response or a divine teaching about how human can face adversity. In other words, again, going back to that metaphor, how can we begin to climb that second mountain? And um, I just want to share the actual text because I think it's very important to see in the Psalkim. So we're in Genesis chapter four um, and verse three. And I just want us to, to think about for a second what's going on. If you remember, we have Cain and Hevel. These are the two sons of Adam and Chava. And Cain is born first. And when Chava names him, she's very much, she names God. She says, God has given me this wonderful person. And Hevel is just called Hevel. And Hevel is, we know, like nothingness or, you know, as Rabbi Sachs translated it, um, a breath, right? It's an, an almost nothingness. And Cain takes over the family business. He works near his parents. Hevel goes and he's a shepherd far away. And Cain essentially, has, he has everything he's built, built, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He has everything that he ever wanted. And one time, you know, he wants to tick the box. He wants to be that good boy. And he brings a sacrifice. He decides he's going to bring a sacrifice to God. So, and it, in the process of time, he comes and he brings a sacrifice to God. And Hevel, his younger brother, as younger brothers do, follows and copies him. And he also brings... And Hashem lifted up Hevel's sacrifice. But Cain's sacrifice, he doesn't lift up. And Cain got very, very angry and his face fell. 
and God says to Cain, why are you getting angry and why is your face falling? Now, again, I remind you of that metaphor I used of the child that comes back and says to the parents, right? It's not fair. The teacher wasn't fair to me, right? This is almost, this is the first time in his life that Kind has faced some kind of adversity, some kind of rejection. He's never faced this before. And, and there's no explanation for it. Right. And that's what's the key here. He doesn't understand why. Why did God not lift up that voice? Everything has worked in his favor. He was the first one that bought it. Again, we have, because of this very starking, stark, uh, this very um, clear um, gap in the text, meaning why does God lift up Hebels and not lift up Cain? So the Mepharshim, all of the commentators come and they bring various comment, various reasons why it would be that God would have done it. But I think the key to the text is exactly, or I should say the message of the text is in the silence. The message of the text is exactly the idea that there is no reason or the reason why is not important. Mm. What is important is how we're going to respond to adversity. How am I going to respond to rejection? How am I going to respond when life doesn't work the way that I want it to? Or in other words, how we had posed it, Yosefa, right? How am I going to respond when my reality or my expectation of reality doesn't match what my reality actually is? And here we have the key. And it comes in verse 7. Hello, imtetiv. Hashem turns around to Kayan and says, why, you, why is your face fallen? Hey, hello, this is life. It's going to happen. You're going to face injustice and things are going to not always work in your favor. But he gives him what I believe to be one of the keys to living as a human being in a world that always is going to fit, is always is going to serve us some kind of injustice. Hello, imtetiv se'et. It's very difficult, it's a very ambiguous pastuk, even more so when we try to translate it. But I'm going to just translate it really, I think, at the most basic, basic level. Hello, imitative. If you make good, and again, we don't know what's going to be lifted, but what I'd like to suggest here is so the commentaries say that your sacrifice will be lifted. But I'd like to suggest that it works on the idea of, because in the previous Pasuk, we just finished, his face fell. And the way that I want to read it is, you will lift your face up. If you are able to make good of a situation in which you don't understand why you've been dealt the hand that you've been dealt, you don't understand why your reality isn't living up to what it should. But if you are able to make good of that situation, you will lift your face up. Your face will be able to show a countenance to others and to yourself that will allow you to move forward or to climb that second mountain. But, says God to Kayan, the imlotative, if you do not make good, the fetachatat rovet, sin will always be crouching at your door and you will be drawn towards it. We all know that it is easier to pay the victim than to take agency. It is easier for me to complain than it is for me to say a good word. We know that that is where we are drawn as human beings. We have that as our nature. And God turns around to him at the end and he says, the only person that is in control is you. You are the one that can rule over yourself. You are the one that can control how you choose to react 
to your situation. Edith Egger, who was a very well-known writer who writes a book called The Choice. She was a Holocaust victim, went through the most unimaginable horrors in the Holocaust. And her book is called The Choice because she says, at every single given moment, I had the choice to be a victim or I had the choice to take agency of my life. And I believe that that message is one of the first messages that God himself gives to mankind through Kayan. And that's what I see here. So I'm saying less important is the reason or the explanation or the trying to understand. Perhaps going back to Eov, I don't understand. But how am I going to respond? How am I going to act? How am I going to make good of a situation that I have no control over? And the only way we can do that is by choosing how we respond to it. So I, I want to just add a few a few um, nuances that really came. I was thinking about when you were speaking, is that we we will try and and bring to the fore here a number of responses. Meaning yeah. it's not just going to be I don't understand what happened, I don't get it, and well, what do I do now? We will go deeper into that mess of a place. We will try and make some order of it. But I do want to say that I don't think. It, correct me if I'm wrong. But when he says that you need to make good or make best of your situation, we're not speaking here glibly about yeah, yeah. look at the glass half full, because I have to say that, that that's a it's a I know you didn't mean that. So I just wanted to yeah, clarify yeah, yeah. that we don't mean a cheap uh, glass half full positive psychology, which is a great thing. I'm just saying we're, that's not yeah, what yeah. we're getting at. What we're yeah. getting at here is that. One does need to recognize that they have suffered. They, you do need to give yourself space to grieve over your, the world view that you've lost, or obviously, and again, in addition to the person or your own personal loss or, or whatever, whatever it may be. But once you have given respect to that place of loss, um, or sometimes it could be before in the case of obviously someone who's in this situation, again, unimaginable, like the Holocaust or in some sort of very difficult moment where they have to make a choice at that moment. Um, but we, of course, there's a space needs to be allowed for the suffering. But the question is, what does one do with that suffering? Do they let it swallow them whole or do you figure out how to emerge from that space? And that is what I think you mean when you speak about doing good, meaning when someone wants to make best and to lift their face, it doesn't mean take that sad, you know, take that uh, that frown and turn it into a smile. But after we've we've given, you know, and respected that frown that we then figure out how to how to move forward in an in, in a impactful way and be the agent of our own of our own journey. Totally. So funny, um, as you were speaking, I was thinking about Sheryl Sandberg's book, Option B, which I think is is a very pertinent to, to our discussion um, right now. A must read. A must read for anybody anybody grieving. Um, and we'll hopefully put a, a reading list together from, from the books we've mentioned. Um, in her Option B, Sheryl Sandberg, who was the CFO yeah. of Facebook and lost her husband very yeah. tragically, very at a very young age and left with two young kids. And she speaks about the idea of living an option B life. You know, it's not ideal, but she speaks about this idea of post-traumatic growth, that the trauma is always going to be there. You're never going to get past it. You're never going to get over it. But can we grow from it? And I think that's what we're talking about here. And when we say making the best, not making the best of a bad situation, it's growing, growing with the trauma next to me all the time. And I think that's really part of it. 
And and I have to say, and, and here I wanted to also bring in one more, um, I think, important distinction that as human beings, we generally have a tendency towards two things, I think. Anyway, and I certainly think I've seen this a lot more over Corona, over the pandemic. One is certainty. We like certainty. We like to know what lies ahead for us. We like to be certain of it can be our environment, of our time, of what's going to be, of how things are going to pan out. Um, And the other thing that we often tend to do, especially when we're suffering or especially when someone else is suffering, we tend to blame. Very often you'll hear someone say, oh, he died from cancer. Oh, that's terrible. How old was he? He was in his 80s. Oh, did he, was he, did he have cancer for a long time? Yes. Oh, and he was a smoker. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, shame. What we do, what we're doing then is we're almost finding, we're, we're, we're using these two things, blame and certainty, because we're, we're saying, okay, well, he was a smoker. So, you know, obviously that's going and that must have led to cancer. We boxing things into certain categories. When we discuss suffering, when we talk about suffering, when we talk about corona, when we talk about many other things and, and, and justified sometimes, right? We very much try to blame someone else. If someone's suffering, if we're suffering, you know, very often we, we see with children, if they do something wrong, they try and blame somebody else. The very first in Gun Eden, they cover themselves up. Each person's blaming somebody else. Um, there's a lot of blame, there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of trying to hold on to certainty. When we suffer a trauma, as you said, it's shattering, right? It's fragmenting. And therefore, what we do is we cling on to certainties. We cling on, cling on to something that will remain steady for us. Uh, sometimes that can be our religious dogmas. Sometimes that can be um, things that we know we're going to hold us and, and continue to hold us. But the, the, the problem with doing that is the worst thing about that, I think, um, and certainly about the blame, certainly about the blame. And often the holding on to the certainties comes with the blame, because when we hold on to certain religious dogmas or certain religious frameworks, it can lead. And we very often hear, unfortunately, religious leaders blaming certain events or certain tragedies on the sins of certain groups. Um, and by the way, it's not just um, particular to Judaism. As in Christianity, you see that a lot as well. Um, the, the worst thing about that, and here I think is, is one of the key things that we're trying to say, and it goes back to what we said at the beginning, when we suffer, we're alone. The worst thing about that, the worst thing about blame, and sometimes about holding on to certainties, is that it doesn't ease the suffering of the other. It ends up making it worse. For example, we go back to the book of Eov. Eov's wife, who, by the way, also suffered, lost her children, but she turns around to Eov and says to him, you know, curse God and be done with it and die. She's holding on to her certainty that if he curses God, he's going to be punished and he's going to die. She's not being with Eov in his suffering. She's blaming him for his suffering. She's blaming others for for his suffering or for her suffering. And what it does is, and Eov turns around and he says, you've not helped me. You're just making it worse. His friends are in the same way. Eov turns around and says, how is this helping me? And he says it a few times in the book. How is blaming me helping me in any way? When we, sometimes people want to hear platitudes. You Again, and I think this is very, it's a very... Um, it's a very fine balance. You really have to know who you're speaking to. Exactly. It's a very, yeah. very great area. but. There are very often times, and I think when someone is in the immediate um, periods of suffering, um, platitudes and explanations can make one's suffering even worse because the person then 
feels even more lonely. You really don't understand what I'm going through. You really don't understand what I've been through or what I'm going through. Um, and here, the to me, this is the litmus test. The litmus test is when, when we're discussing all of these paradigms, to me, one of the major things is, does your explanation ease the suffering of the sufferer or does it make it worse? And when, when Eov, the only time we see that his suffering is eased is after God comes down to him. And this to me was like, when I suddenly realized this, it was like mind blowing that at the end of the book of Eov, God comes down and he takes this on what I call this magical mystery tour of the cosmos, right? He takes him on all around and shows him, he says, where were you when I created the world? And he takes him to see all these monsters and giants, whatever it happens to be. And at the end of it, Eov seems to have been some, in some way, he seems to have been comforted. And I think, why is that? And the only explanation that I can find is that God is the only person who comes and doesn't offer platitudes or explanations. He just comes. And the fact that there can still be an encounter between man and God, even after everything Eof has been through, is in and of itself a comfort. Is in and of itself, God's presence has created a makom, right? And that's another word for God, right? A place, a space, a holding. Right. In, right? In, right. in psychology, we often talk about the idea of, of holding, right? A lot of times people will will go to therapy and it's not necessarily even for some, obviously they'll also gain insight and that itself has a healing aspect to it. But sometimes it's that they literally need a space at which they can unpack and put all that difficulty and pain there and that it be held. And that for though that hour of the week that there's nobody who is going to try and make it better or say something that I'll even use the word is stupid. <laughs> okay. Meaning no one is going to say anything that will make that hole even bigger but just to have that space there that is going to hold the the questions, that's going to hold the suffering, that's going to the hold pain. the yeah. unending pain. And and I think that exactly is what you're describing with Eov, meaning God holds Eov with him. Uh, he holds him. And obviously, sometimes we also mean physical touch, but but he's he holds that question with him without offering necessarily even a response. And so I think that that's a really important piece also as we're winding down the episode and we will continue on with more responses themselves. But sometimes the most important response, even theologically, Tanya, is what you're saying. Sometimes even the most important theological response is to hold somebody in their suffering and that there may not be any kind of explanation that can be offered, but that certainly in the immediate aftermath and sometimes more than that, that people need their suffering held. They need to know that it's not grotesque. They need to know that, that it's not scary and too intense for the world around them, but that there is some place they can go where that, where that, those questions and those quandaries and those, and, and that, and the emotional rawness of what they're experiencing can can just be there without it being a nuisance to somebody else in the world. Yeah, so I, I, I really think that is such an important idea. And to me, and I think this is something we need to define, is that when when we give someone, when we offer someone answers, and here I'm really honing in on the difference between the answer and the response. But when we offer someone an answer or an explanation, it's can often be more painful 
than the pain they're enduring. And I think when we talk about creating meaning from suffering, and we're going to we're going to continue this as we go on through the episodes. But when we talk about creating meaning from suffering, I think that one of the most important insights is that ultimately the only person who can create meaning or can, sorry, that can give meaning to suffering is the individual who's mm-hmm. gone through that suffering because they are the only one that understands what they've been through, what, 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 what alleviates their suffering. So again, it goes back to the litmus test. Does our explanations, our answers, our responses, does it alleviate the pain of the person or does it um, increase the pain of the person? Only they are able to know that and therefore only they can create the meaning for themselves out of their suffering. So I think I'll even just interrupt with a small example is that often something that my husband and I speaking about and I, I also try and teach my children, which is always a, a more difficult uh more difficult goal, but when we talk about helping. It's it's really the same thing. Even if it's just a small household help, and I'll have asked for something, and they say, "Well, I didn't clean everything up from the table, but I put something away on the other side of the house." And I was like, "That's great, but that isn't what I asked you to do." And so that's helpful, but it's not the help I wanted right now, um, because what I really wanted now was what I asked you to do, and that's not what was done. And and it's it's a very difficult. Um, differentiation, certainly for children to know. We're talking here on a much grander level of emotional differentiation, of knowing what it means to, you know, only the person themselves can define what it is to help them. And obviously, when people are able to speak and say, I need a meal once a day, right? Or I, whatever, whatever it might be. If, if someone is able to articulate what they need, then that's phenomenal. But obviously people, a lot of times when they're in a difficult time, as we said before, they're not always in possession of those kinds of words or that kind of clarity. So I think that that's a really important point that only the person themselves who is suffering can define, uh, when that when meaning has been made or that has been alleviated yeah and i want to just add one other thing in to go back to the notion of makom i think in the same way that only the sufferer can define the meaning that they need i think in the same way only a sufferer can define the relationship that they can or want to have with the divine with god through their suffering um and it reminded me when we were talking about makom um, of the idea of the Akedah, where again, and this goes back to what we began with, really, when you said that very often there's not a language that one can, um, that, that we lack very often when we're suffering or we're going through pain, painful experiences, we lack the language with which to express ourselves. So it reminded me very much of the Akedah, where again, exactly what we're talking about happens to Abraham, the the reality of what he thought or his his believed reality comes face to face with the reality the cognitive dissonance for him at that moment when he's asked to sacrifice his son is so great because between what he believed he was and between what is and all we hear from him the entire narrative is hineni 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 right we don't hear any other words because he physically cannot express what he's going through so one of the things that we hear in the text is when he looks up, he sees Hamakom Mirachot. And we always take that to be the mountain. But to me, that's odd. Because at that moment where we have that... Hamakom being God. Being Hamakom being God, right? Being that space. That, that space where God holds him, which is what he was used to. He was used to the intimacy that he had with the divine until that moment. That's been ripped away. And... Part of the journey up the mountain for Avraham to me is the journey back to the Makom, 
back to that intimate space. Because when we are suffering, and I, and I really want to finish with this because I think it's so, so important for people to hear this, that when we suffer or when we go through some kind of personal adversity, um, and, and perhaps over the last year and a half, all of us have gone through some kind of theological and personal adversities, I think it's super important to hear that sometimes God can feel distant, that we don't know how to relate to God, to divinity, to, um, to to religion, to everything that we've believed until now, is all of a sudden taken away from us. And I think it's okay to say that that mountain, that space, that divine intimacy is far from me at this particular moment. It's not that it's disappeared and it's not that we're never going to get back to it. It's just that at this particular moment in my suffering, in my pain, in facing my adversity, I can't use the same intimate language i can't pray in the same way i can't speak to god in the way that i used to and that's holding space it seems to be very far from me right now and i think if we interpret that narrative of the akedah in that way it gives us hope that if even for Abraham that is the case then for us it's also okay for us to sometimes know that we will get back to that space, that intimate divine human space. But perhaps at that moment of suffering, it's just not a possibility. So I think that itself is also super important. So just to summarize our our conversation up until now, Tanya, is that basically we've discussed the dilemma itself uh, and the importance of addressing the dilemma in the world we're living in at this current moment. Uh, Our goal really is to bring um, theologies that have been marginalized over the years, sort of move away from the sin and punishment model that still, if it still speaks to you, then, then that's great. Um, but, but to bring other theologies to the fore that we think uh, maybe meaningful for for people uh, in within the you know the small biblical study of the verses that we saw. There definitely is a mainstream approach of sin and punishment, but there are other theologies that are also there. There are other theologies as as you've brought in the story of Cain and Hevel, uh, where every individual is the agent of their own change and that we have a the ability to take things at this and to make good out of whatever we've been given um and echa which certainly does not deny the pain that exists and does not deny the pain of the individual suffering even in the face of national tragedy and the book of Yov, which as, as we said is really the biggest joker out there is he sort of laughs in the face of all explanations. All, all, all responses really pale in comparison to the reality of how large this question actually is. And so, even within the biblical corpus, there really is a wide variety. There are there's a wide variety of responses. What we're going to look at in the coming episode uh, are rabbinic ideas uh, that maybe we're familiar with, maybe we're not familiar with in the way that we're going to speak about them. But ideas that do exist in uh, in rabbinic texts, both from the Talmud and from Middle Ages and later on, in response to uh, to these questions of how we process uh, difficulty, struggle, and disease, and uh, and how we can relate to those struggles and try and fit them into a worldview that feels uh, that feels right for us. So stay tuned for the coming episode.
I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.